Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy and neuroscientist Richard Davidson. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Greetings, everyone. I'm Richard Davidson, and I'm very happy and honored to be with all of you this evening, and especially deeply honored to welcome uh, our special guests for this conversation, uh, two dear friends of mine. Uh, one is Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States. I first got to know Vivek during his tenure uh, when he was Surgeon General under President Obama, uh, and I'm so deeply grateful for everything you are doing for our country, particularly uh, with the challenges that we now face. And also welcoming my dear friend and esteemed journalist, thought leader, uh, Krista Tippett, whose uh, podcast On Being has brought uh, the sacred to everyday life of so many uh, thousands, millions of people worldwide. So uh, I'd like to now turn it over to Krista, who will moderate for this evening. And thank you both so much for being with us. Hello. Um, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here, um, to be part of this event, to be here with all of you who are joining us by this miracle of Zoom. Um, imperfect and yet miraculous, all the same. Um, I, if 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 any of you have um, have listened to me or read things I've been writing over the last few years, I have so often used this, these words. I have said, you know, as we walk beyond what we've been living through, we have a world to remake. And so, of course, I had to say yes to this invitation to this event called the world we make. Um, and in the context of drawing out um, Richard Davidson and Surgeon General Vivek Murthy and their deep intelligence and vision from the realms of science and public health expansively understood about the agency we have and, and how we are learning about the agents we have to grow and shape our minds and our bodies and our presence in and to the world. Um, it's such a strange and hard and fascinating time. Um, we are called to be part of so much healing and so much growth. Uh, and at the same time, we are learning a great deal that can help us help move us forward as a species. So I think that is my audacious vision for what we're going to, the, the, the ground we will traverse in this next hour or so. And I'd like to start, I also want to encourage the two of you to, um, to speak to each other. This will, be, this will be a conversation. Um, and I'd like to start with the language of well-being. Um, that is kind of a, a, a primary concept. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word and a phrase that is, that is used a great deal um, by the two of you. It's, 
it's relatively new in our life together. Um, and really, we are having these rapidly evolving cathartic shifts in understanding the fullness of what that means and can mean. And I would say that you have both uh, lived through those cathartic shifts and also been part of them. And I'd like to start with just asking, um, you know, thinking about that, that, that language of well-being, what understanding of that did you inherit or imbibe growing up and in the early training you had in your fields? Um, and what has that phrase come to point at for you now? Richie, would you like to go first? Please, Vivek, you pl- why don't you take it first? Well, first, let me just say what a joy it is for me to be here with both of you. You know, I have such deep admiration for both of you and the work you've done and the immense contributions you've made to society. I've learned from both of you over the years. Uh, I just feel very blessed and privileged to have this chance to converse. Uh, you know, well, be it's an interesting question you ask, Krista. I think that my earliest teachers in medicine and in life were my parents. And they didn't use the word well-being, but they conveyed a concept of what well-being was to me uh, when I was you know, very, very young. And what they helped me understand was that it, it wasn't just enough not to be ill, hmm. but that there was a whole spectrum on which we could live and operate. And part of thriving in life, uh, according to my mother and father when I was a child, was doing the things that allowed you to function on the highest end, if you will, uh, of your scale, where you were being who you were, enjoying life, contributing to society. Um, and as I got older, it's interesting, I went to medical school, I trained as a doctor. The concept of well-being didn't really come up uh, very much. We were, it's felt in training, we were very focused on identifying and eliminating disease, an important endeavor, no doubt. Uh, but it felt like half of the story and the other half about how to optimize uh, our sense of well-being, if you will, that was not so much the focus. There weren't words for it. There wasn't an approach for it. Uh, there wasn't science and data that we talked about and reviewed in the classroom. But I will say now, and finally thinking about not only my life now, but thinking about the responsibility that I've been privileged to take on, to think about, and to do everything I can to support the broader health of our country, I think about well-being a lot, because I think we have an opportunity to really see health in its broadest sense, to redefine public health, uh, not just as the absence of disease, but really as the endeavor that we all need to undertake to cultivate uh, our ability to live at the top end of our scale, Hmm. if you will, and through that, uh, to not only enjoy life and, uh, and and contribute the most to the people around us, but to contribute also to society uh, in the way that can move all of us forward and help us get through very difficult times like this pandemic. Hmm. We hmm. will pursue that further. So, um, Richie, well-being, what understanding yeah. did you inherit and how has that evolved? Yeah, I love that question. And uh, I'm finding that I'm spontaneously recalling uh, events from my childhood. My, my father was a businessman, uh, not connected in any way with academics. And I remember times when uh, 
the, the details aren't what's critical here, but uh, situations where he was in a business relationship with someone, and I remember very distinctly uh, that uh, uh, there was an agreement to the, these individuals were not able to um, pay uh, for something that uh, had been agreed upon. And I remember my father working out some kind of barter arrangement. Uh, and, uh, 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 and there was a transmission of kindness in that process that uh, uh, I very distinctly and uh, somatically experienced. I still can envision uh, slight tearing in, in both of our eyes as this transaction was unfolding, and I was a witness to it. Uh, and so the, the element of uh, human connection, uh, which I've learned so much from Vivek about, uh, uh, was uh, so palpable. And uh, this, uh, I think, provided the seeds. I didn't have a language for it at that time, uh, but uh, it kindled in me the quest to understand the mind and the heart. Uh, that has been a lifelong quest. And then when I was a student, uh, particularly when I was a graduate student, I was trained uh, very much uh, in the way that Vivek was describing. I was trained to, when I look at people, to try and discover what is wrong with them. Right. And, uh, the focus on and, dysfunction. Yes. Yeah. And now uh, uh, when I look at people, I have re- trained myself mm. to look at people and to discover what's right with them. Mm. And it's a very different orientation. Uh, and I think that uh, one of my aspirations is that we can learn from this pandemic uh, the qualities that we can nurture to help us going forward in a way that will uh, build our resilience mm -hmm. so that when we encounter adversity again, uh, we will be equipped uh, with the tools of well-being that will enable us to navigate these challenges more smoothly. And, you know, you and I have spoken before about how the, f I mean, you were you right at the beginning of the field of neuroscience. I mean, neuroscience as we know it now did not exist when you, when you entered your career. There was no brain imaging. You know, so the ways that we're learning on this frontier um, are very, very new. And even Vivek, I mean, Western medicine, the, the, the medicine of the 20th century, you pointed this at this a little bit, is, you know, really has only been learning to acknowledge the interplay between the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual. In fact, that our bodies are all interplay. But we, we haven't known that scientifically until very recently. Well, Chris, I, I think you're right. I think that there has been a tremendous amount of discovery in recent years in medicine. But you know what's interesting to me is that if you look in scripture, and if you look at teachings over centuries, I find that that understanding has it was there. always been yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this notion that that our heart and our head and our soul that there's a, a beautiful interplay mm -hmm. between them, and not this stark separation that we seem to read about in the textbooks over the years in medicine. And so, 
you know, I, I do think that in some ways, like medical science is catching up to an intuition. Mm-hmm. I think that people have had uh, over centuries, and and I think it's a very exciting time. But I think it's also very important that it's happening now because the truth is that we can't fully optimize our well-being. We can't understand how to build a foundation for good health if we don't understand the interplay between our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health. And and some of these, I think, in the world of public health, we, we sometimes have some, you know, some shyness or difficulty talking about, spiritual health being one of them, mm-hmm. which I think of as, and when I think about the conversations I've had with patients over the years, so many of them have leaned on their spiritual traditions, whether they have a named religion that goes with it or not, but they've learned, leaned on those spiritual traditions for support, for insight, uh, for energy and healing during difficult times. Um, and I think the more we're able to talk about that openly, and explore these sources of strength, I think the more readily we'll be able to improve and enhance well-being in our country and around the world. Mm. And, uh, and if I can just add to that, uh, I think that the discoveries in modern uh, medical science, neuroscience, biobehavioral science has helped us to understand more of the details of how well-being is embodied. And so uh, when we think about well-being, it is not simply uh, uh, an ephemeral psychological state or condition, Mm -hmm. but it very much uh, is intertwined, as you say, uh, with our Uh, all the organ systems in our body in ways that have demonstrable consequences for our physical health. Uh, And so uh, the opportunity to cultivate well-being is not simply an opportunity to cultivate these subjective qualities, but uh, it uh, can potentially have uh, a profound effect on Uh, our physical health as well. And this, I think, is one of the um, really exciting issues that is on the horizon now. And I think the uh, uh, understanding of some of the mechanisms through which these interactions occur has enabled well-being to penetrate uh, into mainstream um, rigorous science in a way today that it has never uh, happened before. In fact, uh, during Vivek's uh, first term as Surgeon General, we began to talk about uh, bringing well-being to the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. And uh, just very recently, uh, the NIH has funded six uh, interdisciplinary networks on well-being to help launch this as a serious scientific endeavor, and um, uh, uh, and we are part of that. And Vivek's voice is very much uh, 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 an inspiring one that helped to bring this about in the first place. That's that's wonderful, and it's the kind of story we don't necessarily hear. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll say, um, I mean, what a dramatic time we've been living through and are living through still. It struck me, it has struck me, I'm, I'm, I'm learning not to speak of the pandemic as something that is in the past, right? We're, we're, we're still in this. Um, the world is still in it. And um, 
it, it has struck me through these experiences we've had um, that that the official media and public analyses and narratives tended to focus around a pretty limited frame of well-being, right? Like we were very fluent in health, certain kinds of health metrics, illness, death, um, and also in economic losses. Um, but I feel like as we move out of this and as we, uh, as I, I believe most of us aspire, as you've been saying, as we, as we want to come out of this and and be as, as robustly and vigorously, you know, live into our human capacities and, and well-being, and we want that for others. Um, that we, that we do need to, you know, that 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 we want to have a, a fuller vocabulary, even um, that that encompasses the complexity of the human condition. And um, you know, one of the. I think single most helpful conversations I had in the last year was with um, Dr. Christine Runyon, who who spoke about the nervous system to me, about what's been happening in our nervous systems, and and not just with the pandemic, but with social isolation, and how our stress responses, individually, and our you know our communal stress response was set in motion in March 2020 for most of us. And then has been on overdrive ever since, and the cascade of consequences that has that do not all manifest as physical illness. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, giving you that that framing it that way. I'm curious as you each, with what you know and what you see and the work you do, as you have watched our encounter with this experience of the pandemic and of social isolation. Um, which we needed to do to stay safe and keep others safe, um, but still, that was something that has that has placed a uh, you know that has been a, that has been a stressful experience to put it mildly on on us as human beings. So how what is your perspective as as you've been seeing what's been happening to us and inside us that that you feel has been missed in the kind of more linear, linear narrative? And and again, that focus on dysfunction, which which journalists do as well as uh, <laughs> as psychologists of a certain generation. Um, what would you like to kind of? How would you like to fill out and um, expand what we're looking at, what we're seeing? And I guess that's also a way of saying, what are you looking at? What are you seeing that is bigger than that narrative? Hmm. That's- such a rich question, Krista, and there's so much to say there, but I think a couple of things I think that are worth underscoring in what you said, which is that there are profound invisible prices that we have paid, uh, wounds that we have sustained during this pandemic. And we talk about what's easy to see and measure, uh, number of hospitalizations, cases, deaths, number of schools that have had to close number of people who lost their job. These are very important consequences, but they are part of a broader set of consequences, which include the impact on people's mental health, on their identity and sense of self, uh, on their sense of connection to other people, and on their sense of purpose. And I think one of the profound things that has happened during this pandemic is, I think it's given people a moment to rethink a lot of things in their life. Now, everyone has experienced this pandemic differently, but the vast majority of, of us have experienced it deeply. And that's led, uh, as many other profound moments do in our lives, to, I think, a, a rethinking for many people. 
Um, for some people, it's been about their work and questions of, do I find real purpose mm -hmm. in what I'm doing? Um, do I, am I supported in terms of my well-being at work? Do I feel I, I belong uh, in my community at work? Do I even have a community at work? And for other people, it's about their family and where they live. Uh, I have lost track of the number of people, Krista, that I've spoken to who have decided that they're going to move to be closer to family and friends as a result of this pandemic experience. Uh, you know, in these ways and in many others, I think many people are asking themselves, do I really want to go back to 2019 or is there a better version of 2019 that would allow me to be happier, healthier and more fulfilled? But this is, I think, a window of opportunity that we have for reflection and for action that I don't think will remain open forever. Mm. You know, there's a certain point after which I think that window closes and we resign ourselves, for better or for worse, to going back to the way things were pre-pandemic. Uh, but to me, the silver lining uh, here if we are, is, can we do better? But the only way we do better is if we're able to confront and talk about some of these invisible costs. It's actually one of the reasons uh, why when I, you know, when I uh, took this job uh, to serve as Surgeon General during this, uh, during this moment, uh, what was on my mind were these invisible costs. Mm. Uh, and I remember, I remember speaking, uh, you know, with the president before I was sworn in about this to say, like, look, if I, you know, one of the things I really want to do uh, in this job is not only help us to get through this pandemic, but to really think more deeply about how we do better when it comes to mental health, about how we have a broader conversation as a country about well-being and how we reflect that, not only in the decisions we make in our lives, but how we design our schools, how we design our workplaces, and what we think of as success uh, when it comes to public policy, not just the dollars and cents of it, but whether or not policy contributes to a sense of well-being. Hmm. Richie, and, what's and been missing for you and what are you hoping to inject in, in this window that's ahead of us? Well, first, let me say that uh, I think we're all so fortunate to have uh, Vivek as yeah. our United States Surgeon General, particularly during this time with uh, such a broad and uh, deep view uh, of uh, human possibility and working on behalf of uh, uh, the, uh, the most positive uh, features of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we couldn't ask for more in our public health leaders. So I'm just uh, so deeply grateful for all you are doing. Uh, one of the things that for me is um, uh, uh, a, a really interesting uh, issue to consider is uh, this pandemic, I think, has taught people uh, how malleable we are, how susceptible to change we are. Uh, and uh, uh, it has underscored plasticity. Now, uh, I often say that plasticity is neutral. It can be harnessed for uh, the good and it can be harnessed for uh, uh, for, for, for negative consequences. And, 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 and let's also just, for people who aren't familiar with your contribution to our use of the word plasticity, I mean, your science has in part been on this frontier of understanding that, that contrary to what you and I were taught when we were growing up, 
our brains don't stop forming. We don't we don't stop forming as human beings at some point that, that and that we actually have agency to to change our brains, to change our bodies, um, to change our character, um, and that all of that is interwoven. That I think that plasticity that it really was a discovery. I think is one of the most exciting discoveries in my lifetime. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, you've put it so beautifully, Krista, and uh, it is such a powerful insight, and it's an insight uh, both about the brain uh, as well as the way uh, systemic biology works. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that uh, the regulation of our genes, epigenetics, the science of how our genes are regulated, is very much influenced by many different uh, factors, including our social experiences, our demeanor, our emotions. uh, uh, And uh, all of that can be harnessed uh, for the good. And uh, a lot of the time, this plasticity is being uh, hijacked, if you will, by forces around us over which we have very little control mm-hmm. uh, and often of which we are only dimly aware, uh, the kinds of actions that Vivek was describing are intentional actions that we can be taking that uh, can uh, uh, promote plasticity in a very positive way. <clears throat> and so I think that uh, uh, if we can take from this uh, uh, this tragedy of the pandemic this insight about the significance of plasticity and harnessing it for uh, our uh, own well-being, I think that it will really uh, have long-term beneficial consequences. I think that's such a fascinating um, lens on the the ways, as Vivek said, um, this time is is bringing people to very existential questions and to really, really being serious about that question. You know, how do I want to live? What matters? Um, and to to bring in um, plasticity and you know what what you have been showing us and others have been showing us that we really can radically change. Um, is a wonderful conjunction. Yes, and, and the science actually shows that it, it, it doesn't take that much. Uh, we can uh, see change in certain contexts with uh, really minimal kinds of uh, interventions which speak to the power of plasticity for mm. making meaningful change. Um, you know, Vivek, before uh, 2020, uh, you were you have long been speaking about a, a public health crisis of loneliness, that, and that was preexistent. And then, one of the many dynamics, um, but a very significant, life-changing one, um, was we were all kind of forced inside. Um, and also inside ourselves, um, and I, I, uh, I, I think one way I have looked at it is that um, we were forced to an encounter with uh, if we were if we were fortunate enough to um, 
to have, to whatever presence of mind we could have, to kind of ponder the difference between loneliness and solitude, um, and which is we don't really learn in this culture. Um, but you you have actually made that connection. I mean, one of when you, you've spoken about how you very compellingly about how after your first term as Surgeon General, you um, did a lot of interior reflection and gained a lot of self-knowledge, that there was grappling that happened. And um, and when you talk about strategies for loneliness, um, one of those that I think might have seemed counterintuitive to many but might make more sense now is to embrace solitude. I'm just curious about how you've re- continued to reflect on that in this time. Well, Krista, I mean, certainly, I think you're right that this this moment has forced people to dramatically change their social interactions with one another. But I, one thing I think was true before the pandemic and remains true is that we all need a certain set of high quality connections in our life. And we all also need some solitude in our life. Mm. And the difference, as I think of it, between solitude and loneliness is that loneliness is a state where a subjective state where the connections we feel we need are greater than the connections we actually have, whereas solitude is a state of physically being alone, but it's a welcome state, a state that can bring peace and enjoyment and reflection and insight. And I think that the culture that we live in is actually a very extroverted culture. Mm -hmm. It can make introverts feel like there's something wrong with them. I say that as somebody who is an introvert myself. Uh, But it's also one that can make people uncomfortable with being alone. Uh, And so, you know, we all may differ on the exact balance that we need uh, of time with others and time by ourselves. But we all need those high quality connections. We all need some time in solitude. I think you're absolutely right that we don't really learn how to cultivate and to enjoy those moments of solitude, Um, especially interestingly now. Uh, in the modern age where we have devices that can fill in all the cracks and crevices in terms of time uh, and in, in our lives. Yeah, they're constantly taking is, us outside ourselves. They are. Yeah. They are. And they also create the illusion that we never have to be alone. Yeah. Uh, we never have to be by ourselves. And so for many people, when all of those connections are stripped away, in a sense, they can be very uncomfortable uh, and I think the pandemic was an interesting time where, yes, people still had their devices, but they didn't have the ability to go and see each other in person as easily. And I think many people recognized uh, during the pandemic just how central and important human connection is uh, to to all of us, perhaps something that some of us may have taken for granted at times. But Chris, you know, one other thing, the last thing I'll say on this is that there's also, I think, a lot we can do in moments where we are not able to see one another in person, that the pandemic also helped us understand more clearly. So for example, being able to spend just 15 minutes a day with other people, even if it's on video conference, mm. uh, as long as it's time with somebody you know, that you know, that you love, that you have a good relationship with, where you're being open and honest, that is very, very powerful. It's a little bit of time can have a profound impact on our sense of connection because we were designed to connect to one another. The second thing we realize can really help is giving people the benefit of our full attention. You know, we live in a world where our attention is so extraordinarily fractured, mm-hmm. uh, fractured in part by the devices we carry in our pockets. Um, but you know, I will admit that I have been guilty on a number of occasions over the years of having a conversation with a friend 
while I'm somehow find my, my hand reaches in my pocket, pulls out my phone and I'm checking my inbox, or I'm looking at the latest score of a game, or I'm sorting my mail while I'm talking. And I'm doing all this because I convince myself that I'm, I can pay attention to multiple things. I'm, I can multitask. It's one of the great myths uh, in falsehoods that we tell ourselves, but giving people the gift of our full attention is what makes conversations so extraordinarily fulfilling. It's what can make the, really the difference between 30 minutes of time that flew by and you don't really know what happened hmm. uh, versus five minutes uh, of just deep, deep connection with another human being. And you know, finally, I just think it's worth considering this. In addition to that time we spend and the quality of the time, it's reaching out to people uh, in acts of service that can often be the most powerful way that we connect with them. And if COVID gave us anything, it was actually many, many opportunities to serve one another. Many people were struggling, uh, struggling to telework and figure out how to make that all happen, figuring out how to homeschool children while teleworking, figuring out how to manage when job you know, security was, you know, dipped suddenly during the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, these were all moments uh, where we had the opportunity to think about one another and show up for one another. And we know that that too is not about money and time, hmm. right? It's sometimes it's the, the simple text that you get from a friend saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. I want to know how you are. It's the two-minute call you get from someone who knows you're going through a hard time just saying, hey, I want to check in with you. You know, How are you? Um, those moments can mean so much. And I think of those as acts of service. They're, it's not just uh, you know showing up at a soup kitchen or volunteering for Habitat hmm. for Humanity. Those aren't the only ways we serve. We serve by showing up for one another being present by giving of ourselves in the way that is truly most natural, but also is an age old tradition of people being with one another in sacred connection. Hmm. Yeah, that quality and focus of presence. I mean, Richie, I feel like um, that's not necessarily the way Center for Healthy Minds talks about what you're teaching people, but it's it is actually a byproduct of of all of the techniques. Um, that, and tools that you offer that um, whether it's school children or adults um, or people who are in distress, um, it's it's becoming at home in oneself in a new way. and um, and a, and a consequence of that, I think is is being able to be alone peaceably, which then yes. which then affects the way you are with others. Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I. First, I think that the, uh, the way that Vivek put it is very much uh, how we would also uh, describe it. Uh, uh, and um, uh, it, during the, the pandemic, I think that uh, uh, in addition to the beautiful examples that Vivek described, uh, we know from both the research that we and other colleagues have done, uh, as well as experiences uh, uh, of, of, of actually doing this, that really simple uh, exercises. Uh, for example, one is appreciation. Appreciation is a quality that is unfortunately not very well appreciated. Uh, it is something that's so accessible and um, when we reflect on our challenges during the pandemic, uh, it doesn't take a lot of thought to recognize 
that no, no single person could navigate this alone. We so critically depend upon others. And one of the things that we often um, recommend to people is uh, uh, to reflect on daily, one's daily life uh, and regular activities. One that I often use is eating. Every human being needs to eat uh, at least a, a few times a day, typically. Uh, and if we reflect on all of the individuals that have contributed in one way or another to enabling us to have food on the table and allow this sense of appreciation to arise, uh, it can be so beneficial. Uh, and even formulating in a more explicit way how you might thank a person when you next see her or him uh, to express your appreciation, your gratitude. Uh, this is something that is an elixir for the soul. Mm. Uh, and even during these times of uh, being uh, um, isolated, physically isolated, uh, I often have said that I think in the early stages of the pandemic, I, I wish we would have chosen the term um, physical distancing rather mm. than social distancing. Mm. Uh, because uh, we can be socially connected even in solitude. Uh, and I think um, this is a point that um, Vivek was making, and, and certainly the, the research really bears that out. And if we do these simple little exercises on a daily basis, uh, it can be so beneficial. Uh, and, um, you know, I often... Uh, uh, remind uh, us that when human beings first evolved on this planet, none of us were brushing our teeth. And I'm sure that every viewer, uh, every listener here, brushes their teeth at least a few times a day. And this is not part of our genome. This is something that we've learned to do because it's good for our personal physical hygiene. And what we're talking about is also good for our physical and our emotional and our spiritual hygiene. And I have this strong conviction from everything that we know that if we engaged in these simple kinds of exercises for even as short a time as we spend brushing our teeth each day, mm. this world would really be a different place. Yeah, Chris, I can actually just add to, on to what Richie so beautifully said. I, I think, you know, in a in a modern society that is hyper obsessed with efficiency and with using every moment, I think this is what's really striking to me about well-being. Like so many of the, the, the pillars of well-being that Richie and, and his team have so eloquently written about, you know, pillars include insight and, and, and purpose and awareness and connection. These don't necessarily require hours and hours and day. You know, sometimes like it is simple uh, moments that can generate so much benefit. Because again, I think our bodies are actually, our minds are hardwired uh, for connection, for well-being. We just have to feed it uh, just even a little bit. But I was also thinking about what you said earlier, Krista, about learning about ourselves, about being comfortable with ourselves, um, connecting with ourselves. Uh, that is so extraordinarily important, but not an area that we focus on, right? When we mm -hmm. think about 
a child's education and right. what they need to know to be happy and successful in life. You know, today, earlier today, we had a parent-teacher conference for my two children. Uh, they're five uh, and three and a half, uh, Tejas and Shanti. And the, it was really interesting that the teachers asked us, like, so what are your goals uh, for your child in school? Initially, I found myself racking my kind of being like, okay, well, do we want them to focus a bit on reading? Do we want them to focus on like social interaction? Like, well, you know, what do we want them to really focus on? And it was only after I hung up the phone that it struck me that actually the most important thing I want for them mm. is to be comfortable with themselves, is to be comfortable in their own skin. Um, there, there's this beautiful poem, which I, I suspect both of you know, by Mary Oliver, called uh, Wild Geese, where the, the first few lines uh, really remind me of this. You know, she says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And that is so simply put yet so elusive, mm -hmm. I find in, in society, which tells us to chase many different things, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's good grades and a resume in school or whether it's wealth, power and fame, which is I think the three, three big goals that society tells us constitutes our self-worth. Um, but the truth is, it's what Mary said, Mary Oliver, like in her poem is that learning who we are and being comfortable in our own skin, loving ourselves for who we are, recognizing our intrinsic value. That to me is one of the greatest things that I would love for my children to learn uh, as they grow up. I wanna do everything I can to make sure they learn that, recognizing I'm trying to learn that my lesson myself mm. and implement it in my own life. But, um, but this pandemic for, for me has made me rethink a lot of things, but one of them is what are we seeking to give to our children through their education? both in school and out of school, how can we best give them the best shot at living a healthy, fulfilling, and happy life? It's so stunning to introduce um, those, those lines of Mary Oliver, because um, it, you know, I would, I would say one effect of the pandemic also, especially in that early period was that we were forced back to this realization of the soft, right? The soft animal of our bodies, that we are all that. Um, our creaturely existence. And, um, and you're right, so much in our society is very harsh. You know, we have, we, we have, to, we have to shield that softness in ourselves. Um, you're right, and, and when we show that softness, mm we're being vulnerable. And many people, I think, have been raised to learn both directly and indirectly through cues from modern societies that vulnerability is weakness, that somehow it means that we don't have enough to cope, that we don't have it all together. Gosh, that couldn't be any further from the truth. We know how much strength it takes to be vulnerable, but we know that vulnerability is fundamentally about honesty. It's about being real. And when we have clarity and confidence about who we are and comfort with who we are, when we are anchored also by our connection to others, that is actually what I think enables so many people to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's what gives us our strength and lets us know that even in moments where we may falter, um, we have someone to fall back on, whether that's our inner strength uh, or the love uh, from family and friends and others in our community. Um, 
Richie, I'd love to go a little bit deeper into the four pillars of well-being um, that that you've worked with with the Center for Healthy Minds. I think you were kind of wandering in there, but I'd really like to delve into it. Um, and and I know that you also have practices, as you said, you and you, you, know, you have micro practices, which is, you know, I greet that that word with relief. Um, uh, not heroic practices, micro practices that can be woven into the fabric of our days. Um, so, would you? Can we kind of go through those four pillars, and perhaps sure. you can offer some of those practices as we go. Sure, I'm happy to. Thank you for the question, and um, uh, uh, and there's a lot to say about the micro practices. Uh, uh, we think of it as micro-interventions or even the micro-dosing of well-being, if you will. And research clearly shows that it doesn't really take much to uh, activate these parts of our mind and our brain and our heart. Uh, And as Vivek says, we believe it's because this is our true nature. Mm. Uh, and, uh, And so we can... Uh, tap into this nature uh, uh, really quite easily. So to go through the four pillars, the first pillar we call awareness. And awareness is typically not regarded as a core feature of well-being. And yet research shows that uh, uh, showing up and being fully present in the way that we Uh, discussed earlier in the way that Vivek beautifully put it uh, in the early part of our conversation is is so much at the heart of well-being. One component of awareness that scientists have spent a lot of time studying is this quality that we call Mm meta-awareness. Meta-awareness is the capacity to know what our minds are doing. That may sound a little bit strange to some viewers, but How many viewers and listeners have had the experience of reading a book where they may be reading each word on a page, and after one or two pages, they realize they have no idea what they've just read. Their mind is somewhere else. It's lost. And the moment they recognize that is a moment of Mm -hmm. meta-awareness. And uh, that turns out to be uh, a a really core element of well-being. You are aware uh, uh, that you are aware. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And a very famous study that was published now about a decade ago uh, found that the average adult, this was a study done with about 3,500 people across different parts of the world. So this was not just Americans. Uh, and uh, the study found that on average, the average adult spends 47% of her or his waking life not paying attention to what they're doing. And when they're not paying attention to what they're doing, they're less happy. Mm-hmm. So that's the first pillar of well-being, awareness. Second pillar of well-being is something that we've already been talking quite extensively about. We call it connection. Mm-hmm. And it really is about the qualities that are essential for healthy social relationships, qualities like appreciation, and gratitude, and kindness, and compassion. Uh, And the simple kind of appreciation 
exercise that I described earlier is one example. Another example, which uh, takes me, I do it daily, it takes me maybe a minute or a minute and a half at the most, is every day in the morning, after I sit and meditate, I'll take out my calendar. And I'll look at everything I'm going to be doing that day, and I'll reflect on the people that I'm going to be interacting with. Mm -hmm. And I spend just a, a few seconds bringing each person into my mind and heart and reflecting mm -hmm. on how I can show up in a way that will be maximally beneficial mm -hmm. and, uh, and appreciate who they are and what they're doing. And that simple exercise has helped me enormously to uh, navigate days that are filled with Zoom calls. Uh, that, that is so refreshing because I, I think, and it's so familiar, is that moment of looking at my calendar, which I often find so oppressive. Uh, and, you know, I want to say also, um, I, I also appreciate that you're, you're putting an ecosystem of words around connection. You know, connection is a word we need, but it's so overused. Um, and it's also... It's very comp it's used in very complicated ways, right? So I have been feeling like not that we can't let go of the word connection. I mean, obviously, it's a foundation of well-being and so many other things. Um, but we need we we can't rely on that word. And so I appreciate surrounding it with words like appreciation and kindness and compassion, not just talking about connection. I mean, you know, we have lots of connection that's not good for us, right? But this is a quality of connection. Yes, uh, and I think that's that's really so important. Uh, and one of the things about connection uh, and the way that we are thinking about it uh, with healthy forms of connection um, is that it we can see the the seeds of connection from very early on in life. And we think of qualities that are part of connection like kindness um, in the same way that scientists think about language, that they are part of our nature. Uh, and just as it is for language, uh, these qualities require nurturing hmm. in order for them to flourish, in order for them to be expressed. And uh, there have been these fascinating case studies of children raised in the wild who do not develop normal language because they have not been exposed to a normal linguistic community. And in the same way, uh, uh, kindness is a quality that is important to nourish for these seeds to, to really grow. Um, uh, uh, and so to continue with the four pillars I've yeah. named, awareness and connection, the the last two are insight, and insight here refers to a curiosity-driven self-knowledge, and uh, really knowledge about the self. We all carry around a narrative about who we are, the stories that we tell ourselves. And uh, we know that there are some people who have very negative stories and uh, negative self-beliefs. This is something that has been particularly 
uh, uh, accentuated during the pandemic. And one of the keys to well-being is not so much changing the narrative, but it's changing our relationship to the narrative mm. so that we see the narrative for what it is, uh, mm. which is a constellation of thoughts. Uh, and finally, the last pillar of well-being is purpose. Uh, and purpose here is not so much about finding something perhaps more purposeful to do with one's life, but rather how can we discover meaning and how can we discover purpose in that which we are already doing, including mm -hmm. all of the kind of activities of daily life can taking out the garbage be connected to our core values. And uh, I, I really believe it can. One of the things that has been a silver lining for me personally during the pandemic is since I've done very, very little travel, I'm home, um, we have cats at home, and I've been changing, uh, scooping the litter every single night virtually for the, for the pandemic. And I, I reflect on, uh, on that as connected to, to values of, of kindness to, to these beings, to um, my wife, uh, uh, and to the general, um, to, to have the house be uh, uh, cleaner when, when people come in. Uh, and it's, it, it, it doesn't take much to connect the simplest things that we do on a daily basis to some of these core values, which uh, enables us to do them with grace and, and really to bring the sacred into everyday life. Mm. Yeah, I think even that exercise of looking at the schedule and thinking about the human human beings who are who are implicated in in what our schedule calendar entries also feels like inserting that kind of pur purposefulness that sacredness um vivek i i want to touch on something that you um have been speaking about recently and and it is uh one way you talk about it is 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 the 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 importance especially, probably always, but especially in our time of cultivating a healthy information environment. And, and it seems to me that, you know, there's a lot of, there's, we certainly have a lot of um, disinformation and a lot of crisis and conflict around that, but that's not necessarily what you mean. You're not necessarily talking about manipulated information. You know, you've said that misinformation can, can be born of concern, um, and a desire to make sense of conflicting information um, and, and seeking answers to good, honest questions. Um, but I think that's such an interesting way to think about uh, what can be a practice um, that is a matter of public health, but also personal well-being. So say, say something about that. Well, Krista, I think we live in such a different information environment than we did even 10 years ago. And you know, I remember growing up, my sources of information were the newspaper, the television, and maybe what I heard on the radio and conversations with friends who would come over uh, dinner and what I learned in school. Um, and that is just nowhere near what today is like, where we have so much information coming at us from so many media channels. People are listening to the same uh, sort of sources of information. So there is a profound inundation that people have with information now. 
And I think it has complicated the information environment mm -hmm. and forced us to think about what serves us, what may, how does this information make us feel. Uh, sometimes we're barraged by negative content that can have a powerfully mm -hmm. negative effect on our well-being and our mm -hmm. sense of self and our sense of other people. Uh, and it can be toxic, you know, in that regard. There's also information that we encounter that is frankly inaccurate, that can have profound impacts on our health and the choices we make. We've unfortunately seen a lot of that during COVID-19, mm -hmm. where, you know, in, whether it's misinformation about the vaccine or about COVID itself, which has led some people to believe that COVID's not even real, uh, that these have led people to unfortunately make decisions that have harmed their health. And But what the part that gets complicated here is that a lot of the information that is being uh, spread is sometimes just being shared by friends and family members who think that they are helping uh, their loved ones by getting information to them. Now, they don't realize that, that information is false or misleading or inaccurate, uh, but sometimes it is. And so I think part of what we have to think about in this new information age are a few things. One, how do we raise the bar in what we share? How do we make sure that what we share is, in fact, uh, coming from a credible source. And if we're not sure, and a lot of times we won't be, uh, then, we then we should choose not to share. The second thing I think to, to think about, and this comes to R Richie's point about awareness, is to recognize how this flow of information that's constantly coming at us makes us feel. Uh, there's a lot of vitriolic mm -hmm. content that people encounter online that stokes uh, their fears, their anxieties, their worries, uh, and often perpetuates, uh, you know, or puts them into this perpetual cycle uh, where they are angry uh, a lot and, uh, and or fearful. And I think a lot of times it's hard to notice that until you've really gone deep into that rabbit hole uh, of negative emotions. But I think understanding how this information is uh, that we're encountering is impacting us and making us feel is actually very important as well. Uh, because we know, unfortunately, that our emotions are profitable in the sense that there are platforms and other you know, entities that can will seek to monetize our anger uh, or our fear or resentment uh, by stoking that and then trying to send us to a place where we can generate clicks and that generates ad revenue, et cetera. So I think being we have to be all the more mindful of what we share, of what we consume, uh, of how it makes us feel. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, I think though it is one of the fundamental skills that we have to equip uh, people with from a young age, because even digital natives, even though uh, you know young people are growing up now and have only known uh, this very complex tech, you know, information environment, that doesn't necessarily mean because they're familiar with it that they know how to distinguish uh, what's true and what's not, what is healthy and helpful for them, and what could be destructive and harmful. And if I can just uh, uh, add to that, I think that this is a hugely uh, important issue. And as Vivek was suggesting, some of the core pillars of well-being, uh, I think, can help equip people to discern uh, what uh, is misinformation and uh, what uh, may be accurate information, and also to discern when fear and when anger and negative emotions are triggered to be able to see how that actually is influencing their intake of information. There is hard-nosed neuroscientific evidence that clearly indicates that fear 
contracts awareness. Mm -hmm. It literally blinds us. And so we become uh, uh, much less sensitive to a wider range of information. It restricts our aperture uh, of what we attend to. Uh, and this can have dangerous consequences. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think for the very future of democracy, uh, it is uh, really uh, important that we educate our children in these basic skills, which will enable them, I think, to be more uh, uh, discerning citizens uh, as they mature. And Chris, I think there's a really important role here that technology companies have. This is not all about technology and technology platforms, yeah. but it's undeniable that uh, the, te the tech platforms are the primary way through which people are consuming information now. And through their design, through their algorithms that they use to determine who gets what kind of information, they can have a profound impact uh, on the emotions that they stoke and cultivate. And what is driving so many of the platforms out there right now is a profit model that's based on how much attention and time they can garner from individuals. I would love to see a business model that's built on how much well-being uh, a platform can cultivate uh, that focuses on the quality of time, not the quantity of time uh, that people spend on the platform. But I think we have a fundamental challenge now, uh, which is that these platforms in many ways are not helping us. They're in some ways contributing inadvertently uh, to the fear and the anger and the resentment uh, and the misinformation, frankly, uh, that many people are experiencing to the detriment of their health and well-being. Yeah, I don't think we can underestimate how, how much fear, with all that, that Richie, you know, what that, how that wreaks havoc in a human body, um, and mind, and 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 what becomes what feel what. Um, what feels possible, or what, or what that shuts down, but that that is a it is a public health crisis that underlies um, so many of our other crises. Um, we are rapidly racing towards the end of our time. I'm just looking at the clock. Uh, you know, the last time Richie, you and I were together, it was in Orange County, California. In an old-fashioned, three-dimensional, in-the-flesh gathering with a bunch of wonderful educators. And they had proposed the topic that, that we speak about and, and that they learn from you, what you're learning, about love and kindness as, a, as, a, as an aspect of education. And Vivek, that, I think that, that echoes what you said about you know, the, the longings you are naming as a parent for how do we, how do we, how do we define that? robustly and with well-being in mind. Um, I, I guess I kind of just want to throw that out there, that language of love and kindness. I, is, are there ways that are also uh, backed with, all the, the, with intelligence and even science that, we, that you could imagine us thinking about love and kindness in life together? And I, I think that love, uh, not as a feeling, but as it actually functions in life, uh, as much more often actions, right? Daily, quiet actions sometimes happen um, in spite of how one feels at the moment. But they're commitments that we make to each other. 
Yeah, th these are great questions. And one of the things that I reflect upon uh, listening to the question, Krista, is uh, and we've talked quite a bit this evening about how bad things are. Uh, and uh, they've been accentuated by the pandemic. And yet, I'm always reminded of the famous speech that Martin Luther King gave in the 60s during the height of uh, the civil rights uh, issues in the U.S. And the title of his speech was not, I Have a Nightmare. Hmm. And I think the, the having a vision of how we could be together as humans uh, embodying the very best uh, qualities that every human being is endowed with, uh, uh, I think is so important in guiding us in the future. And, and certainly love and kindness are at the center and uh, uh, are, are so critically important. And uh, uh, this is our basic nature. Research shows that when humans um, uh, in the early stages of life, in early infancy, if you expose them to interactions that are loving and warm-hearted compared to interactions that are selfish and aggressive, the infants, more than 90% of infants, prefer the warm-hearted, loving interactions. This is who we are. This is our nature. Hmm. So I think that having that as a guide is, uh, is really important. And so beautifully put, Richie, and I couldn't agree more. You know, I do think that in many ways the pandemic has made me more optimistic about the future, uh, about where we're all headed, because sometimes you have to take things apart in order to put them back together in a better way, in a stronger way. And I think while it does feel like there's more chaos in our lives now, I think there's also more opportunity to rethink how we live, and to do that in a way that makes us stronger and more connected and happier and healthier. But I think at the heart of this is, in fact, what you spoke of, Krista, is love. You know, I'm reminded as you speak about, you know, those, those days when I, I, that day in particular when I came home and, uh, when I was Surgeon General the uh, first time around the Obama administration and I encountered my, my wife was sitting in the living room uh, and she, she just looked really happy. She had this big smile on her face and I said, what's, what's going on? And she showed me this pregnancy test indicator that was positive. She said, you know, we're going to be parents. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be our first child and we were just over the moon. We were so thrilled. And of course, then my mind immediately raced all the things I was anxious about. Do we need to move to a bigger house? Do we need to do this, that, et cetera? But the thing actually I actually found myself most preoccupied with in the days that followed were, was the question of what kind of world we were bringing our child into, recognizing this was a time in 2016 where there was a great deal of strife. There was a great deal of polarization that hasn't gone away, obviously, since then. But we were seeing so much of the negativity and fear uh, in the world just splashed across uh, the newspapers and the front, the headlines on TV. And there are times I ask myself, what kind of world are we bringing our child into? You know, reflecting in those times just helped clarify for me that fundamentally there, there are two emotions that I feel drive our decisions and how we feel. There's love and there's fear. 
And they have different manifestations, you know, compassion and generosity and kindness, or the side of fear in terms of anger and, and jealousy and insecurity. But fundamentally, it comes down to love or fear. And the, the question I find myself asking again and again is, what can we do in our lives through the decisions we make, the choices we make, about how to tip the scales in the world away from fear and toward love? How can we do that through how we treat other people, through what we say, through the issues we choose to speak up on in the public square, through the jobs we take and the purpose we seek to fulfill? How can we tilt the world toward love and away from fear? And it's ever since then, Krista, you know, we've been blessed with another child and that his only opportunity to have another child has only strengthened, I think, in us the just the, the conviction that it's our responsibility to do all we can. Um, and I have seen, uh, I've been so grateful to see in the years since then that these qualities that we are talking about today, compassion, kindness, all fundamentally derivatives of love, that these are healing. You know, and I say that as somebody who has had the privilege of prescribing many medicines over time. Right. There's nothing more powerful that heals than, than love. And so I think that has to be at the center of our strategy for life, for building a healthy society. To me, that's one of the greatest and most powerful tools we have for public health is to build a society that is firmly grounded in love. And that starts with what we teach our children, with what we choose to practice, like in our day-to-day -day life. Uh, and with fundamentally recognizing that public health is about more than policy and about structure. It's about culture, values, and identity. And if we anchor that culture, our identity, our values in love, I think that will guide us to the place where we need to, we need to go, which is a place where we can find each other, be connected to each other, and truly be healthy and happy, which is, I believe, what we all want. I think that you both have such an incredible vantage point on the fullest possible story of our time. And so just just briefly as we close, I'd, I'd love to, if you have an offering of something you are seeing or ways we keep learning and growing, where you see um, this this greater potentiality um, in action, you know, unfolding, even if it's just, you know, an encounter or an experience that you've been aware of. Well, I, I'd be happy to go first and uh, share that uh, I think it is in the simple activities of our daily life that we can bring these qualities of love and kindness uh, and make this decision that Vivek has so beautifully and starkly put. Uh, this is a choice between... Uh, love and fear, and love is what is consistent with our nature. Uh, and it doesn't take much to get it going. One of the uh, amazing things that we've learned during the pandemic, we did this uh, study with public school teachers where we were offering some simple practices to nurture their well-being during the pandemic. And one of the teachers said to us that uh, this uh, um, set of practices helped to remind them 
of why they chose to be teachers in their in the first place mm -hmm. and their love of children and love of learning and that they tapped into that for the first time during the pandemic and it just unleashed this energy and this resilience and vitality that enabled them to to keep going uh, this is something that is accessible to all of us. One of our mottos in our center is that we can change the world by changing our mind. Uh, and so uh, I'd like to invite all of us to be part of this change, to make a commitment. Uh, how can we bring love and its derivatives uh, into our daily life? And please share that with us uh, you can go on our website and uh, and do that. Uh, do it in whatever way is best for you. Uh, this is, I think, uh, the aspiration that we all have coming out of this pandemic. Richie, I think you're taking us out there. I don't know if you think you you said you gave us so much um, just a moment ago. Is there anything else you'd like to say? And then, Richie, you. You will, you will um, do the benediction here. Well, Chris, I would just say I, I love what Richie just mentioned because I think that if, it can seem at times that the world is a very dark place, especially now during the pandemic. But there is so much light around us if we're willing to look for it, if we're willing to pause and observe what's happening. And one of the things I observe actually on a daily basis when I drop my children off to school and when we pick them up, is I see all these children interacting on the playground. Mm -hmm. And one of the beautiful things about watching children is that they're just so natural and uninhibited with each other at times. And I see kids helping each other up, including each other on the, on the playground, um, being kind to one another. Um, and it reminds me that one, we have the capacity even during times of crisis, uh, to summon uh, love and compassion and kindness from within ourselves and to share it with others. And one of the great gifts of children, not just having children yourself, but being around children, is that we're reminded that those gifts are intrinsic uh, and that we may forget them at times. They may be clouded over uh, by negative events and disappointments and expectations that were not met. But we fundamentally are born with the most important qualities we need, the ability to love one another and to love ourselves. And so that is what gives me hope, is seeing those reminders day after day among our children. Uh, they remind us of who we were born to be, of who we can always be. Uh, and that's a lesson I'm trying to take to heart in my day-to-day -day life as well. Thank you, I'm so grateful to be part of this and for the work that you you and your colleagues all do in the world. Thank you, Krista. And thank you, Richie, for bringing us together. I'm grateful for both of you. Thank you both so much. And uh, thank you for all you're doing in the world. And uh, if I can leave listeners and viewers with a simple little practice of uh, noticing something positive in those with whom you interact uh, and expressing your gratitude, your appreciation, uh, whenever that is possible. That is 
something that doesn't take much and it can be an elixir. It can uh, heal our soul in ways that uh, we so desperately need. So uh, uh, you are each two of my heroes on this planet for all that you're doing. And uh, I'm so deeply grateful for, uh, for this evening and for all the work that each of you is doing to bring love to, uh, to everyday life. Thank you. Thank you.